Okay, now that we've forced our anti-gun friends to concede the fact that gun rights are an individual right, let's move on to another big question about the Second Amendment. Did the founders intend for people to have any weapons, including military weapons, or did they just mean for us to have muskets? Now this may sound like some silly false dichotomy, but several celebrities and news pundits have actually claimed that the Second Amendment is meant for muskets. Republicans like to pretend that their interpretations of the Constitution are based on the original intent of the words. They insist that what matters is what the authors of those words had in mind. They think of themselves as mind readers of the Founding Fathers. Well, this is what they had in mind when they wrote the Second Amendment, a single shot firearm that takes a bit of work to reload. The kind of thing that would make it impossible for someone to walk into his workplace or his school or a movie theater or a shopping mall and kill 20 people. And many other people who realize how stupid that sounds still say the same thing a different way when they say that the founders never intended for people to have weapons as powerful as AR-15s. This is the claim that gun control activists make when they accept begrudgingly or otherwise, that the Constitution guarantees individual gun ownership. Now, I have several points to make about this perception of the Second Amendment. First of all, the founders were not stupid. This perception assumes that our founding fathers had no sense of history and no imagination whatsoever. They obviously knew that weapons of the future would be more powerful than weapons of their time. It doesn't matter whether or not they specifically imagined an AR-15. They chose their words very carefully. They intended for the right to be open-ended. If they wanted us to have muskets, they would have said, the right of the people to keep and bear muskets shall not be infringed. Secondly, by the same logic that the Second Amendment is only for muskets, free speech wouldn't apply to the internet, warrants wouldn't be necessary to search computer hard drives, and the free exercise of religion wouldn't include Mormons. Since the founders never could have imagined Mormonism, Justice Scalia put this perfectly in DC versus Heller. He said, quote, Some have made the argument bordering on the frivolous that only those arms in existence in the 18th century are protected by the Second Amendment. We do not interpret constitutional rights this way. The Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence in the time of the founding. End quote. And my final point on this is that muskets weren't even close to the most powerful weapons in existence at the time of the founding, and the founders knew that. There were plenty of pre-constitution assault weapons that could destroy buildings, sink ships, or kill a whole lot of people in a very short amount of time. For example, the Girondoni air rifle was built in the 1770s and it was famously used on the Lewis and Clark expedition. It had a 22 round magazine that you could fire in about 30 seconds. The pepper box revolver, or pepper box rifle. This was a repeating firearm with three or more barrels that revolve around a center axis. Some had over 20 barrels. The concept was first developed in the 15th century, hundreds of years before the Constitution. The Puckle Gun was a primitive version of a Gatling gun. It was built in 1717 and it could fire about nine rounds per minute. The Belton Flintlock, it was built in the 1770s. It had a repeated flintlock design. It could fire 20 rounds in about five seconds. And you don't even need a history lesson to know that there were obviously cannons and mortars and hand grenades. The founders knew all about these weapons and yet they didn't leave them out. They deliberately chose the word arms without any caveats. 
So surely at this point, any anti-gun folks who are still listening must be running out of ways to misinterpret the Second Amendment, right? I think I've pretty much left no stone unturned when it comes to the Second Amendment. But even after they drop the whole interpretation thing, gun control activists still have a couple of points they'd like to make. First of all, you may have noticed a common theme here in every one of these arguments that I've laid out, and that's that the founders regarded an armed citizenry as the ultimate deterrent against tyrannical government. Many gun control supporters have addressed this line of thought. They call the idea quaint, or cute, or just outright ridiculous. They say, if you think an AR-15 is going to protect you from government tyranny, I have a black helicopter I'd like to introduce you to. Really? Why don't you say that to Vietnam? Why don't you say that to Afghanistan? Both of which thwarted the efforts of the most powerful countries in the world using little more than small arms, homemade explosives, and guerrilla tactics. And they never had 320 million people. They never had 300 million guns. If Americans had to resort to similar tactics, we would be far greater in number, far more heavily armed, far more resourceful, and far more resilient than any insurgency in history. Whether tyranny came knocking from inside or out, that tyrant would have a hell of a fight on his hands. Not only is this idea not cute or quaint, but every serious thinking person knows it's true. And the most successful tyrants in history also knew it was true. Hitler knew it was true. Stalin knew it was true. Mao knew it was true. Gun control was the favorite policy of so many genocidal regimes in the 20th century. An estimated 56 million people were rounded up and murdered under gun control regimes like the Soviet Union, Germany, and China. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, who was appointed by James Madison, put this so well when he said, quote, The right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as a palladium of the liberties of a republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers, and will generally, even if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. End quote. The last point that anti-gun activists can make once they've resentfully accepted that the founders, the courts, and the majority of the American people all agree that individuals have the right to keep and bear arms, is that they just don't like the Second Amendment and would like to repeal it. Now, as horrible as this idea is, at least they're being honest. At least they accept the facts, and at least seem to respect the Constitution enough to admit that the amendment process is the only way to get what they want. At least when they suggest repealing it, it forces us to have an honest conversation about our right to defend our life, liberty, and property. I'll take that debate over the interpretational debate any day. And this suggestion to repeal the Second Amendment isn't that far outside the norm for the left these days. In 2017, the New York Times had an article simply called, Repeal the Second Amendment. Give it a read, but the gist of this article is that the writer accepts that the Second Amendment does indeed give individuals the right to keep guns, and then suggests that we simply repeal it. And I'll sum up the article with a final sentence from the whole thing. It says, quote, Expansive interpretations of the right to bear arms will be the law of the land until the right itself ceases to be. End quote. Now, repealing the Second Amendment is obviously a horrible idea for reasons I've already articulated and for reasons that are forthcoming in future episodes. My reason for bringing it up is to point out that this is not a fringe idea anymore. It is in the mainstream. It's in the New York Times. And I have no doubt that this repeal movement is only going to grow in popularity. Alright, so now we're done talking about the Second Amendment. But when it comes to the constitutionality of gun control, the Second Amendment isn't the only constitutional provision that we have to keep in mind. We also have to consider the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment says in part, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. 
nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. End quote. This comes into play when legislators propose laws which restrict certain people, but not others, from owning or buying firearms. These people may be mentally ill, or convicts, or people with a financial proxy, or people under 21. Now, this 21-year age requirement is a common proposal. Some people think it's silly that the government can restrict the purchase and consumption of alcohol from adults age 18 to 20, but the same government won't ban the sale of firearms to people under 21. Look, the excuse that we already restrict the rights of law-abiding citizens doesn't make it okay to restrict more rights of those same citizens. As a side note, the fact that the drinking age is 21 is completely discriminatory and unconstitutional. It's a clear example of a state making and enforcing a law which abridges a privilege of 18 to 20 year old citizens of the United States and it's depriving those persons of their liberty without due process of law in direct defiance of the 14th Amendment. Due process means courts, not the legislature. You can't just legislate someone's rights away. That is not due process. If we're going to limit an individual's rights, it has to be done by a judge, and there has to be a fair appeals process. There is a way to do it. The 14th Amendment does leave room for some gun control. Now, it may or may not be fair, but it is constitutional to prohibit convicts from possessing a gun because that liberty was deprived with due process. A judge took away that liberty as a consequence of a conviction of a crime. As long as the guilty verdict was found by appropriate means, i.e. all rights afforded to the defendant and all evidence legally obtained, then the due process requirement of the 14th Amendment was indeed met. We can prevent violent criminals and mentally unstable people from getting guns, but only with due process, only with a court order, only with a robust appeals process. Like I explained with alcohol a minute ago, no such case can be made for depriving 18 to 20 year olds of their rights. Either they're adults or they're not. Age of majority means the age at which a person is granted by law the rights and responsibilities of an adult. If we say that's 18, then making laws that abridge the rights and privileges of any of these adults is a direct violation of the 14th Amendment. Even if you argue that individual gun ownership is not a right, which it is, as long as it is legal in general, it is a privilege, which is also protected by the 14th Amendment and therefore cannot be abridged by law. So you're still barking up the wrong tree unless you can win the battle of complete prohibition, i.e. abolishing the Second Amendment. The bottom line is, the Constitution not only guarantees the individual right to have and use weapons, but also it keeps the states from picking which law-abiding, peaceable citizens get to enjoy this right and which ones don't. If you want to argue whether or not guns are a right, or what kinds of guns we all have a right to, that's a Second Amendment argument. If you want to argue who can have a gun and who can't, that's a 14th Amendment argument. Alright, so now I'm going to dive into the statistical arguments about guns. Before I do, I want to point out that many of these arguments I first encountered in Sam Harris's blog titled The Riddle of the Gun. He also has an episode of his podcast where he reads this blog, and I'll put a link to both in the episode description. It's a very well-reasoned argument. Sam is a huge lefty, but he's probably the most reasonable person in the gun control debate. Now, he discusses several policy solutions that I completely disagree with. He also doesn't care much for the constitutional argument. It really has no bearing for him. But he is spot on when it comes to the statistics, which is why I'll be making many of the same arguments here. 
What's funny about statistics in this case is that ethically they don't matter, and yet, despite the effort of manipulative leftists, they still cut in favor of gun rights activists. I say they don't matter because how many people die from guns each year has no bearing on the ethical hard case of how much force one should be able to use in defense of his or her own life, liberty, or property. The statistical argument isn't nearly as interesting as the ethical argument, but I'll cover statistics here anyway because statistics are the favorite toy of gun control activists. And you've all heard these statistics uncritically regurgitated by celebrities and the mainstream media. So I'll highlight some of the most popular myths, tell you the real quick truth, and then point you in the direction of some literature that helps support that truth. Myth number one. More guns means more murder. The U.S. has the most guns per capita in the world, according to an international small arms survey. But we're number 28 in gun homicide rate, according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. By the way, all sources for all the statistics in this episode can be found in the episode description or in the transcript of the show. Another counterexample that Sam Harris brings up in The Rule of the Gun is that according to the Pew Research Center, based on data gathered in 2017, in the cities, 29% of households have at least one firearm. In the suburbs, it's 41%, and in the country, it's 58%. So the rate of gun ownership doubles as you move from the city to the country. Yet gun violence is by far a city problem. As Sam Harris points out, the people at the greatest risk of being killed from gun violence are the people of Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, and New Orleans. Myth number two. Active shooter situations are extremely rare in the rest of the world and extremely common in the United States. Look, there's almost 330 million people in the United States. It's completely unfair to compare us to other countries simply as a matter of sheer numbers. The only fair way to compare is to use the rate of mass shootings, not the total number. According to the Crime Prevention Research Center, if you compare European countries and Canada with the U.S., the U.S. is number one on the list for total mass shooting deaths. If you take mass shooting death rate per 1 million people from 2009 to 2015, the U.S. is number 11 behind Norway, Serbia, France, Macedonia, Albania, Slovakia, Switzerland, Finland, Belgium, and the Czech Republic. If you want to talk how often mass shootings occur rather than the number of deaths, the U.S. drops to number 12 on the list for frequency of mass shootings per 1 million people. And that's just comparing us to Europe. If you compare us with the rest of the world, according to another Crime Prevention Research Center study, out of the 97 countries where we've identified mass public shootings occurring, America ranks 64th in the per capita frequency of these attacks, and 65th in the mass shooting murder rate. Myth number three, an assault weapons ban would solve the gun violence problem in America. Proponents of an assault weapons ban point out how the AR-15 has been used in several recent mass shootings, and that the AR-15 is now the most popular rifle in America. They call them military-style weapons, or assault weapons, and the silliest one, automatic weapons, when they clearly mean semi-automatic. Now sometimes they say it right and feel really smart, but they say semi-automatic, clearly not understanding that almost all guns are semi-automatic. The FBI Uniform Crime Report provides two counter-arguments to the assault weapons ban. First of all, we've tried this before. In 1994, Congress passed a 10-year ban on assault weapons. Since the federal ban on assault weapons expired in 2004, the sale of these type of weapons has skyrocketed, yet the murder rate has fallen abruptly for years. Even with an uptick in the murder rate in recent years, the murder rate in 2018 5 per 100,000, was still lower than the last year of the assault weapons ban, 2004, 5.5 per 100,000. Secondly, the vast majority of murders committed with firearms are committed with handguns, including most mass killings. 
As Sam Harris puts it in The Riddle of the Gun, quote, the most common and least stigmatized weapons are among the most dangerous. Gun control advocates seem perversely unaware of this, end quote. Even with an assault weapons ban, Harris says, quote, unless we outlaw and begin confiscating handguns, the weapons best suited for being carried undetected into a classroom, movie theater, restaurant, or shopping mall for the purpose of committing mass murder will remain readily available in the United States. But no one is seriously proposing that we address the problem on this level, end quote. As I pointed out before, the Supreme Court has already struck down handgun bans in DC versus Heller in 2008 and McDonald versus Chicago in 2010. The assault weapon thing is a red herring, and the FBI Uniform Crime Report proves it. In 2018, 47% of all murders in the US were committed with handguns. Only 2.1% were committed with rifles of any type. A drop in the bucket. More than twice as many, 4.8%, were committed with bare hands and 10.7% were committed with knives. Even if we talk strictly in terms of mass shootings, an assault weapons ban would do very little to help. With the exception of the Las Vegas shooting, there's no reason to believe that the shooters in any of the mass shootings where AR-15s were used would have killed any fewer people had they only been armed with pistols in a dozen 10-round magazines. The advantage of accuracy and muzzle velocity that a rifle has over a pistol is severely mitigated at ranges of fewer than 20 yards or so. In most school shootings, the victims are shot at close range and multiple times. An AR-15 is no better for this tactic than a pistol. In fact, the deadliest school shooting in American history, Virginia Tech in 2007, was carried out with pistols. 32 people were killed and 17 were injured. The shooter carried two pistols, a Glock 9mm and a Valter 22, which will remain legal under an assault weapons ban unless all handguns are banned as well. And myth number four is actually a myth about a myth. Pro-gun folks say that we have a right to self-defense, and that's why we need guns. And then some anti-gun folks say that the self-defense argument is a myth. In a Facebook gun debate I was having shortly after the Parkland shooting last year, I tried to shift the conversation from statistics to ethics by bringing up self-defense and what gun control does to our ability to defend ourselves. Here's a literal quote from that conversation. Quote, The self-defense argument has many holes in it. It's more of a mythical situation than proven. The chance of your kid dying from your gun you have in your house in case of a mythical self-defense situation is much greater than a criminal dying from that same gun. But whatever. If your five-year-old dies from your gun, that's on you. Doesn't really bother me too much. There is enough justification for policies to not need to bring the myth of self-defense. End quote. First of all, ouch. What a horrible thing to say. It wouldn't bother her too much if my kid died. But anyways, this once friend of mine is nobody you've ever heard of. And I say once friend because she unfriended me on Facebook after this conversation. But she is definitely one of the most saturated sponges of gun control propaganda I've ever met. She knows every statistic and the names of every shooter and every school that's ever been part of a mass shooting. She reads every article that looks anti-gun from every network or paper that pushes the approved lefty narrative. So if she thinks it, I know she's not the only one. So let's debunk this myth about the self-defense myth. According to a $10 million study commissioned in 2013 by President Obama and done by the Centers for Disease Control, Defensive gun uses by victims are at least as common as offensive uses by criminal, with estimates of annual defensive use ranging from about 500,000 to more than 3 million per year compared to about 300,000 violent crimes involving firearms in 2008. So it would appear that the good use of firearms outweighs the bad use. And for the sake of fully destroying my once friend's argument, which again was, 
the chance of your kid dying from your gun you have at your house is much greater than using the same gun defensively against a criminal. Let's talk about the number of children who die from firearms. According to a 2017 Childhood Firearm Injuries Report by the American Academy of Pediatrics, on average, 1,297 children die of injuries caused by guns each year. 44% were suicides and accidental deaths combined. So here's the number my friend was talking about. That's 575 children each year, which last I checked was far fewer than 500,000 to 3 million defensive uses of firearms. Since she said five-year-old, I assume she was referring only to accidental death, so I'm going to go a little further and remove the suicides, which were 38% of the total, leaving 82 children each year killed by accidental gun death. Again, far fewer than 500,000 to 3 million defensive uses of firearms. Now, I'm not trying to trivialize the deaths of children, accidental or otherwise. Even if the number was only one per year, that would still be tragic. I bring it up because this is a very specific point that anti-gun folks bring up in a very douchey way, like my friend did. Other than being flat wrong, as I just showed you, and completely missing the point, the worst thing about my once friend's argument is that it's a blatant refusal to talk about the ethics of gun ownership and gun control. She tried to dismiss this obviously important topic as a myth. Because again, statistics are the favorite toy of gun control activists. They don't like to argue ethics because they'll lose. I, for one, have had enough of statistics for one day. That's all anybody wants to talk about, pro-gun or anti-gun. So if you like statistics, check out the links I provided that further lay out the rebuttals I gave. To me, the question of gun ownership is above all an ethical one, not a statistical one. So next, I'm going to discuss the most important and interesting part of this debate, the ethics. And we'll get to that on the next episode. Thank you so much for watching and supporting this show. Please be sure to leave your thoughts in the comments section or over at Twitter. All the links you need are down below. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. The views expressed in the show are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, or the U.S. government.